The scripture for today comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 33. Verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing this morning in our study of the Apostles' Creed, which we just recited confessed together, and we're taking it phrase by phrase, line by line, and studying a key passage of Scripture that illuminates or unpacks for us these core beliefs articulated in the Apostles' Creed. And today, uh, we're centering on this phrase around the ascension of Christ and looking at Acts chapter 5. So let's pause and let's pray together as we open up God's Word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time we have together. Uh, even the, the hum of conversation, it's, it's encouraging to know that we're not alone. It's encouraging to know that we have others around us uh, that are ready to bear burdens with us. It's encouraging uh, to have community to lean upon. And, and most of all, it's encouraging to know that we have you. Uh, we pray that we would hear most of all the hum of your voice of your conversation with us through your word. And so come and send your spirit in this time and make this time in your word profitable for each of us, this brief time. And so come and give us help, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure you're familiar with this kind of dramatic movie scene. You've seen it before. You're traveling on a commercial jet, you're on a flight, and it's a dark and stormy night. And so the plane is bouncing around and rolling in the midst of this storm, and passengers gasp with each time the jet drops in the air. As it does, the flight attendant approaches the cockpit, curious, and opens the door, only to discover that the pilot is unconscious. He's passed out, not flying the plane. No one, in fact, is flying the plane. You've seen that moment many times in movies. Perhaps you've even dreamed about that moment uh, in a stress dream of some kind. And maybe some of you feel like this is kind of a metaphor for your life right now. The cabin is rattling, the thunder is rumbling, everything feels like it's shaking, and you're convinced that no one is flying the plane. You're sure you're gonna crash any moment now. And if this is how you feel, do you know what you need? The ascension of Christ. You, you need fresh faith 
that Christ not only died, not only rose again from the dead, but that he ascended into heaven, as the Apostles' Creed tells us, and is seated, even today, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You may know the story, 40 days after rising from the dead, Jesus didn't unzip his humanity, so to speak. He didn't leave his human flesh behind and return to heaven. No, he ascended bodily. He went up to heaven where he is today. Even now, Jesus is alive. And he is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And Jesus' apostles testified to this reality. Today's passage, Acts chapter 5, is one such instance in Scripture. Jesus' core disciples, his 12 knocked down to 11, they've been arrested. They've been imprisoned for preaching about Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. And as our passage opens, we find that the religious rulers have begun to feel that their status as sort of the kingpins of religious life in Jerusalem, their status, their legitimacy even, is being threatened, they feel. We're told early in verse 17 that they've been feeling jealous of the apostles for their growing popularity because of the spiritual power that they've demonstrated as they've healed the sick and performed many miracles. They're jealous And so we hear them say in verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. And the apostles reply, sorry. With astonishing boldness, Peter and the others say, they reply, we must obey God rather than human beings. And then in verse 30, in the middle of our passage, they go on to bear witness to the ascension of Christ. Let me read it again, verse 30. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. So, briefly, what do we learn about Christ's ascension? Three lessons and a few applications, and then we're done. So first, three quick lessons about Christ's ascension. What does it mean? Why is it significant? What's the big deal? Number one, Jesus is reigning over us. Christ is risen. Christ is ascended into heaven, and that means now, today, this very moment, Jesus is reigning over us. We're told in verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. This is royal language. Not only is Christ called prince, we're also told he's exalted to God's right hand. In other words, at the throne of heaven. Peter, earlier in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, preached the same thing on the day of Pentecost, quoting Psalm 110, which says, 
God speaking to his servant, his king, sit at my right hand. This is coronation language. The ascension of Christ was his public enthronement. I don't know if you watched the coronation of King Charles. I mentioned it just a few weeks ago. I know I'm really coming across as a a royal family fanboy over here. But listen, it's not every day that you get to watch a real-life coronation. And you might have noticed, if you saw it or maybe you read about it, heard about it, just the impressive displays of tradition and ceremony. The gowns, the attire, the crown, of course. The singing, the adoring crown, the adoring crowds. And, of course, that grand coronation chair upon which the new king sat. As you recall those images to your mind or as you remember hearing about them, remember this. On earth, from an earthly perspective, Jesus' ascension was a strange but modest moment as he was taken up into the sky with no one but his 11 disciples there to witness it. A modest moment from a human perspective. But in heaven, if we could have seen it, Jesus' ascension and enthronement would have made King Charles's coronation look like preschoolers playing make-believe in the sandbox. Pretend kings and queens. So unfathomably grand would have been the choir of angels singing as he rose up. Uh, So great would have been his train, his royal robe, extending throughout the courts of, of heaven. So radiant would have been the light gleaming, not from his crown, but from his very face. Jesus enthroned in heaven. Can you, by faith, dare to picture it, begin to see it? Jesus is reigning over us as king, and his rule extends over not just one spot in creation, one little piece of earth, Jerusalem maybe, no, or just Washington, D.C. maybe, no. The whole world, and even more than the world, his reign extends across the entirety of the cosmos. Jesus is reigning over us. Secondly, the ascension of Christ means that Jesus is near to us. He's near to us. Now, think about it. That's probably exactly the opposite of what you might expect to hear, right? Jesus ascended. He went up to heaven. So that makes it feel like he went somewhere far. That was a a departure of sorts. So what do we mean that he actually, by his ascension, is, is near to us? Notice in verse 31, We're told that the effect or the result of his ascension, his being exalted by God and seated at the right hand of God, was that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Intimately involved with his people. Now we're going to unpack what that means in just a moment, but at least we can say this broadly speaking, that the purpose of Jesus' ascension is to remain accessible and intimately involved with his people. In fact, he's not far off. He's forgiving. He's loving. He's near. How so? 
by the Holy Spirit. You see, when Jesus went up, the Spirit came down. That's what Acts chapter 1 verse 8 told us when Jesus himself said, I'm leaving physically, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And earlier in his ministry, he said, as recorded in John 14, I'm going to depart, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How? Well, he said the Holy Spirit was coming. He called him the Comforter, gave him a title and a name, described his role. Comforter, one who would be near, one who would actually bring to us the very presence of Christ. You see, the ascension of Jesus does not spell the absence of God. Rather, through the Holy Spirit, God is now more present with us now than he ever was even when Jesus walked on earth. I mean, can we imagine that? Can we understand that during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, walked and talked and healed and preached, right? Just like the rest of us in a human body, therefore limited and confined to one place at one time. Could not be everywhere every time. So he might have lived next to you, but if he lived next to you, that means he wasn't living next to somebody else. If he might have lived next to you, but now he actually lives in you. He might have lived next to a few, but now he can live in and among all those who call on his name. All around the world, everywhere. And every time of need that you have calling upon his name. It's why Jesus himself could say in Matthew 28, and surely I am with you always, always to the very end of the age. When Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down and made Jesus more present than ever to us. And so the ascension means that Jesus is personally nearer to us, nearer to you and me than we can possibly imagine. Thirdly, the ascension means Jesus is applying his work of atonement to us. He's reigning over us. He's near to us. And he's applying his work of atonement to us. The New Testament often uses the language of intercession. Romans 8.34 says this, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What's he doing right now in heaven? If you're in Christ, Jesus is praying for you by name. What comfort that can be for us. But more than that, look again at verse 31. We're told he was exalted into heaven that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Jesus is applying his death in our place for our sins now to us that we might actually experience forgiveness from God. He died for our sins and now, having done that in the first century, in Palestine, long ago, dying on the cross, he's now making what was historical, personal to you and to me. 
earlier, we heard in our pardon from John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Earlier, I touched on that word advocate. It's a special word that we find in the Bible. In the Greek, it's parakletos, and it's actually a word that was drawn from the courtroom, a legal word. It refers to one who pleads another person's cause before a judge. It's representation. It's someone who is counsel for a defense. It's an intercessor. You see, Jesus is actually in the courtroom of heaven pleading your case. That despite all your sins, because he's died for you, he's saying, look at the evidence of my blood that covers over every one of her sins, his sins. You must forgive. You must forgive. Because justice has been served. You have an advocate in heaven, moment to moment, every time you sin, every time you fall short of God's glory, every time you live selfishly, every time you offend, Jesus is right there immediately advocating on your behalf, pleading on the basis of his blood that your sins be forgiven again and again and again. Jesus is not only reigning over us, and he's not only praying for us, He's defending us against the evidence of our own sin. Hallelujah. This is good news. We have such an advocate in heaven. Jesus applying his work of atonement to us personally in real time. So then what difference does this make? Just a few quick applications. If Jesus ascended into heaven, friends, you can be fearless and bold in your living. You understand the whole context to this passage. The whole context to this passage is the apostles facing deep threats, even threats upon their lives. And of all things, what what are the truths that they recall as they're sort of engaging these religious leaders that are threatening them? What are the things that they're picturing before them? It's the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ, which gives us confidence, security, assurance in the midst of real threats, real fear, fear that you and I experience every day. You see, in the very last sentence of this passage that Rachel read earlier, verse 33, when they heard this, they, the religious leaders, were furious and wanted to put them to death. You might not be facing the threat of death right now, though you might be. Perhaps an illness, perhaps a different kind of fear that's deep in your heart, deep in your body, deep in your life. But all of us know that this world is full of danger. Now listen, Jesus being ascended into heaven, I don't want to mislead you We are not saying, the Bible is not saying that Jesus will save you from all harm, that life will never hurt. The Bible is not saying this, but it is saying that Jesus will always be with you in the midst of your hurts and harm. Jesus will always give you grace to persevere, to keep going in spite of and in the midst of 
your hurt and harm. And Jesus will always keep the harms in your life ever from being ultimate harms to you. Don't you see? I know some of you are paralyzed in fear, afraid that bad things out there might harm you, or perhaps it's people. You can find assurance in the ascended king who's reigning over your life in this world, assurance and comfort to know that he's got your life in his hands. And he loves you. So whether if it's that relationship that feels like a threat to you, or that job circumstance that feels dangerous to you, or that unclear, uncertain, gray area in your life or decision that you need to make that feels like the scariest thing you've had to bear, Take heart, friends. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's ascended and he now reigns over every last detail of your life. And I know that for some of you, you're not afraid of the circumstances out there or that, that maybe others will harm you, but maybe what you're most afraid of is that you will harm you. I read this story recently of this 10K race in Atlanta that was held on the 4th of July, maybe you read about this too, there was an elite runner by the name of Sinberry Teferi who was in the lead and with just meters to go, just really, you could see the finish line right there with just meters to go, she took a wrong turn over to the right. In the lead and then took a wrong turn and ended up falling back to third place and not winning the race. It cost her prize money, it cost her that honor of first place as she finished four seconds behind the leader. And some of you hear a story like that and, and you're afraid that you in your own life might take a wrong turn. And maybe that's what paralyzes you. That you're afraid that you might make a wreck of your life. But listen, you need to believe in the ascension of Jesus. Jesus, the prince, is reigning over every part of your life. As the Heidelberg Catechism says from the 16th century, he preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Without God's permission, not even a single hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. With this point in mind, I, I found it a little bit amusing when this morning my one of my daughters came up to me and, and said, hey, Dad, I think I have a stray hair caught here behind my earring. Can you actually help me pull it out? And, and so I grabbed that little hair, and remembering this truth, I was like, oh, one less hair on your head. Jesus knew. Jesus was holding count, and he said, minus one, right? Right there. That's how detailed his care and concern is for you. The prince has his eye on you in love. And then when we're freed of this fear and we're freed from the terror that comes from this sense of threats surrounding us, all the energy that we used to use for our self-preservation, now we can start to turn it outward towards our neighbor, right? I'm not just consumed with like, oh no, what's going to happen to me? 
But knowing that Jesus has got me in his hands, I can turn outwards and say, oh no, what's gonna happen to them? How do I love? How do I care? How do I bear burdens? How do I protect? How do I serve? You see, when we see Jesus ascended on his throne, we can turn towards our neighbor in bold love, in service, and in sacrifice. If Jesus is ascended, we can even give up earthly goods and even give up comforts in order to love well. Why? Because we know where he's at. We've got treasures, eternal treasures in store for us. And he gives it to us as a gift. We'll never be spiritually penniless. He will always have more in store for us. And so we, in our lives here, we can give and give and give. And I'm not making light of how tiring, exhausting, and costly that can be. But I am saying, if you're tired of loving, look up. Look up to where Christ is, to where the Prince of Heaven is, and know that He will give you more grace to love. Will you look up? and renew faith in the ascended Christ, which makes us bold in love, bold in generosity, bold in sacrifice. And now in closing, if Jesus is ascended into heaven, you can be confident in the forgiving love of your Savior. If, if it's true that Jesus really is interceding for us, if it's true that we have an advocate that's pleading our case before the throne of God, who's really showing evidence for why we should be forgiven. Evidence found not in ourselves, but rather found on the palms of his hands. Which means that our standing before God is secure in heaven, right? The grounds upon which God shows you favor and blessing is not found in you, it's found in Jesus in heaven, which means nothing's going to change that. Nothing's going to touch that. Nothing's going to make that go away. As long as Jesus eternally reigns and intercedes on your behalf in heaven, so long will God's love for you last. And that's a mighty long time. Because Jesus is for you forever. And Jesus' love in heaven is out of reach from any threat or any rust, or any rot. His favor for you will never change. So if you're struggling to know that you're loved or that you're forgiven, what's the call? It's just this. Look up. Peel your eyes off of yourselves and look up to the throne of God where Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for you. You may know the song that we often sing called Before the Throne of God Above. It really is a song with some of the richest lyrics that, that almost instructs our hearts and in how to, with faith, look at Jesus, the ascended one who's interceding for us, who's advocating for us. This is how the lyrics go. Before the throne of God above. So right there at God's throne, I have a strong and perfect plea. Right? So someone is pleading on my behalf. Who is it? A great high priest whose name is love, 
whoever lives and pleads for me. So there's Jesus. You're calling by, recalling by faith this picture of Jesus at the throne of God, this priest who loves you and who pleads on your behalf. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. As long as Jesus stands in heaven with my name engraved on his hands, my place in heaven is secure. No one can tell me to leave, right? So when Satan tempts me to despair, as often happens, the accuser says, what kind of Christian are you? How dare you call yourself a follower of Christ? You say you love, you don't love, you don't love nobody but yourself. And you know what? Sometimes he's not wrong. So what are you going to do? Satan tempts you to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Then what? Upward I look. Not inward I search. Right? Upward I look and see him there. Who made an end To all my sin, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So if you're despairing, flooded with guilt, unsure that God loves you, not positive that Jesus is taking care of you, overwhelmed by the threats of life and of death, not sure where this decision you're about to make is going to go, rattled by mistakes you've already made. What do you need to do? Upward I look and see him there. Beloved, look at the ascended Christ. Fear not, Jesus reigns over you. Fear not, Jesus is near to you. Fear not, Jesus is interceding and advocating for you. So be bold in faith and hope, and in love. Let's pray. Jesus, is it really true that you are there, as the scriptures teach us, to believe that you are there, ascended and reigning at the throne of God, the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, advocating for us, near to us by the Spirit, comforting us, reigning over us, protecting us, being our King, our Savior, our representative and our God. Is it really true? Help us to believe that all these things are true. Help us to believe it and help us to abide by it and live in accordance with these truths. Grant us your Holy Spirit. Give us faith and renew our love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.